Hello and welcome to the Mangal Media Show, in cooperation with Root Radio Live. I am Mangal Media Editor-in-Chief, F.L. Levant. To learn more about us and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website www.mangalmedia.net. Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. A monthly pledge of over $5 will give our readers digital access to our illustrated short fiction project, Guide to Every City. In today's episode, we will be joined by Bana Al-Ghatbana to talk about a recent article, Belly Dancing, Activism and the Politics of Pleasure. The article explores the importance of self-care and pleasure within the activist environment. The author particularly focuses on our personal experiences as an active participant in the Syrian revolution and what it means to claim spaces of pleasure during a political struggle. Hi, I'm here with uh, Bana Al-Ghazbana uh, to talk about her article, Belly Dancing, Activism and the Politics of Pleasure, which we have just published on Sunday. Uh, hey, how are you? I'm good. How is it going? Good, good, good. Um, so maybe you could start with telling us a little bit about yourself. Oh yeah. Um, did you want to start with the poem? All oh, right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, okay, oh, yeah. let's, let's start with the poem. Like you said, you wanted to read a poem, uh, about the article. So yeah, let's, let's hear the poem. Okay. Um, I wanted to read this poem because, um, it's about sort of the vividness of being and how we can tap into pleasure in a way that doesn't require money or any kind of capitalist, um, you know, structure. Um, and it's it's getting published in Afghan Punk magazine, oh, right, which I think yeah, is a really yeah. cool project and um, might resonate with some of the li- listeners and followers. Um, Wait, you wrote this poem? Yes, I wrote the poem, but it's named after um, a famous poem by Abu Al-Qasim al-Shabi called uh-huh. which was an anthem for the revolutions. If one day the people should choose. If only one day we should choose life. If only one day we chose blooming and butterflies and the breeze. If only we chose the seeds of flowers. If only we chose the surface of the earth, velvet with moss and kisses. If only we chose the blossoming night. If only we chose desire. If only we chose the luscious fruit. If only we chose the jungle and the wolves on the mountain. If only we chose holding each other and soft bellies and children laughing from the trees. If only we chose the spirits of those whose breath made the building shake. If only we chose delight. If only we chose the quest of glory high, the lunar hour, the trembling rose, the bewitched sunset, the harvest, the impulse to change, the gardener's dreams, the worm's residue, Cleopatra on her knees listening to the mud, the lotus, the moringa, the mishmish, the places the birds took shelter. If only we chose freedom, evergreen and unbound. If only we chose rhythm's daughter, the sun goddess napping during the storm. If only we chose the water, beginning again. If only we chose the south. 
the roots, the sunrise, the wind. If only we chose what was nourishing and lush, if only we chose cherries and limes and redded braids beaded by the clay bouncing together a morning hymn. If only we chose the ancient languages, tenderness, tears, the stone, the flame, the Nile, the Mississippi River, your grandmother's eyes, her hands. If only we knew, tomorrow is a home we have prepared for you. It's quite evident that the concept, the idea of pleasure is something that preoccupies your mind quite a lot recently. Yes. Um, I'm in a context right now. So uh, maybe I can use this to share a little bit about myself too. Um, I'm in a context right now in the U.S. South in a majority white town in the U.S. South in Arkansas with huge corporations that sort of run this area, like Walmart, Tyson, um, that are built on racial injustice and exploiting people of color. There's also a university nearby, so a lot of the white people here like to think that they're more enlightened than the rest of the South and that they're more diverse and multicultural. the text message that went viral in our community about a white supremacist group threatening to murder any minorities that are out on the streets. And so the typical response would be, you know, uh, understandably so, fear, you know, wanting to care for our safety collectively. And people are taking those steps because the threats are still very real. Um, but as someone who, at the age of 16, I was declared wanted by the Syrian government for 50 million Syrian lira because of a video that I released against them and who was tracked down by government agents and, you know, they tried to kidnap me and my mom and all of these things, I realized pretty early on that my fear and my stress is exactly what the system wants me to be. They want me to be afraid and they want me to be stressed the fuck out. I don't know if I can curse on here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so every time that I insist on prioritizing my own joy, and it's not just joy, but it's also sadness and rage and my feeling, I am able to live a life that I'm not supposed to live in the eyes of the system. Mm -hmm. I, 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 think, I feel like yeah. you're going to say more, so. <laughs> yeah, I just, um, I'm just thinking like, uh, I think too, like, there have been other historically targeted groups who have theorized on this a lot and I think reading them has helped me um, I think of like Lucille Clifton a black arts uh, movement poet and black feminist and she has this poem called won't you celebrate with me where she says born both non-white and a woman won't you come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and failed and I think about that all the time um, I think about at the beginning of the Syrian revolution, I was in Turkey. I wasn't in Syria because of what I just 
mentioned, um, dangerous, but uh, I did go to these protests in Istanbul and, and was part of this organizing on the border. And my friend and I, my comrade, my compañera were protesting at a protest and initially just about Syria. And then we started to criticize, criticize the Turkish government and immediately the police showed up mm. and shut it down completely. And she was like, okay, let's go. I, I want to go with you to the market. Let's just look at all the clothes and relax. And I was like, are you serious? Like this makes us terrible. We can't call ourselves revolutionaries and like, you know, engage in this kind of like capitalist, mm -hmm. whatever, excessive nonsense. And she was like, first of all, relax. We're just window shopping. <laughs> Second of all, isn't the point of all of this that we can live and experience our lives without, without having to be afraid? You know, isn't the point of this so that we can be young and young women and have a, a life full of vivid color and details and we did and we went to the markets and like you know I don't know that can easily someone can hear that and it can be co-opted because of the way that the wellness industry this quote-unquote self-care industry has been weaponized and used in in like the U.S. for example as a mode of gentrification as a mode of displacing black and Latino people by setting up like Lululemons or whatever, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not talking about that kind of brand of pleasure and self-care as, as a sort of an industry. And I think especially in light of those industries, you know, forming, um, we need to shift the conversation around a more political, a politics of pleasure, one that comes as an awareness that we are countering and embodying an oppositional worldview by doing those acts, by doing things that don't require money, like dancing or, you know, using our voices or creating. It was the act of me creating at this young age, creating a, a way to tell my story in the form of a YouTube video that was so ultimately threatening to the system that they would spend so much money and so many resources just to make sure that I would be eliminated and stay silent. So yeah, now I think I've said what I want to say about that. Yes, yes. And yeah, I'm trying to uh, formulate a question to what you just said, but it was kind of just so... Uh, internally coherent and complete that I find it difficult to kind of find something to elaborate on that, to be quite honest. Um, perhaps we can kind of talk about what that new idea of self-care would look like as opposed to the, 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 the version that you've criticized. I mean, yeah, aside this... from the fact that it wouldn't require money, you know, like what, mm. what would it emotionally entail? What would it kind of, what kind of connections would it, uh, would it foster between people who are engaged in it? I think it would require being in our bodies, being embodied. What does it mean for communities who have been targeted by systems of 
racial capitalism, of imperialism, of war, of occupation, of authoritarianism, to not be displaced from their bodies and not be running on empty, not be stressed out and triggered and have, have a nervous system that is constantly on edge and afraid of the next target that will come your way. You know, what does it mean in Syria when, when my communities are being physically targeted, bombed, targeted with so many barrel bombs, napalm, phosphorus, different kinds of annihilatory weapons? What does it mean that they have chosen in so many different capacities in so many different communities to open these underground centers, underground libraries where they're doing things like theater, where they're reading, where they are, and the infrastructure of schools and libraries and things like that has collapsed. So you're getting a window into a world in apocalypse, essentially, outside of capitalism where people do not have resources and they are literally using their imagination to survive. They're using, so theater, for example, you know, theater of the oppressed was developed in Brazil as a way for, you know, working class communities to physically take up space on the streets and to, to have like a pedagogy that enables people to express themselves in their bodies without, you know, anything, you don't need any supplies, really. You just need a story to tell and some actors and in Syria like there's a, a program called Khutuwet, Little Steps and in eastern Ghouta in 2016 under starvation siege which is systematic resource deprivation where they close uh, all of the you know surrounding entry points where food and, and other supplies come in that was all shut down and people were, were under starvation siege. Khutuwet was going around as well as another collective, I can't remember their name, but they were young men and Khutuat was young men and women, were going around and using bed sheets and creatively appropriating everyday items to, to help the kids have fun basically and be expressing themselves. Or the local council of Dereya um, had this video where they did a workshop on how to make cake for the kids but they used dirt and they used you know things that the kids would find like buttons and the kids loved it so i think there's something that many of our communities can teach us particularly as you know the global north right now is like in a state of crisis i mean pretty much the whole world too the, over the pandemic and trying to figure out like okay something about our structures is not resilient enough to handle this level of crisis so what can we do to to make a way for ourselves and I think it looks like being in our bodies but I don't know I think I don't know exactly what that looks like for everyone I think for every community it's different I know in my own family if I were to I sort of mentioned this in the article I mean if I were to be like self-care and belly dancing whatever they'd be like okay and for them as uh at least for my relatives and everything 
prayer, for example, like doing Muslim prayer, that's, that's very like yogic body centering practice that they do that makes them feel, you know, like grounded. And I think that's valid. Each community has its own sort of practices and you can't make a universal set. I think that's where, you know, the sort of Western self-care industry you know, brands a particular model of this is what an empowering self-care practice looks like. I, I also feel like a lot of the times the kind of, uh, I suppose, the Westernized model of self-care, which is constantly yearning for some kind of spiritual connection, but it's mm -hmm. in total denial, especially when it comes to Islam, about a pre-existing spiritual connection that people do actually already have and you know in kind of appropriating this entire idea of kind of taking religious religion out of spirituality they kind of mm. try to turn it into kind of like a welfare system uh but but it's already spiritual it's already something which connects people uh with the universe in a way that they just kind of mostly associate with terrorism exactly yeah yeah, I think it's completely valid. There are so many things that I can learn from, you know, the way that my grandmother um, sort of embodies her own body. And, and in many time, many cases, she also teaches me, she always puts herself last too. And I see the, the gendered ways that like, people who are gendered as, as women, you know, never typically get space to like, it's, it's just seen as excessive and indulgent if, mm. if she were to practice something like self-care. But for her, she's already doing that by her own spiritual practice of, you know, waking up early and doing dhikr or praying fajr. And there's something my grandma, I just thought of this hadith that she always says, which is, العجل من شيطان والهدوء من الرحمن, which is, being being stressed out is from the devil <laughs> and being at ease is from god <laughs> and i think it's a really good um i think like in a sort of i could look at this in an anti-capitalist way and um and then being at ease or being calm is is from god and it's like i don't think a western model of of self-care would like relate to, to something like that obviously it's very binary but um now you're starting to see more and more um practices especially from black communities brown communities in the u.s like trisha hersey and the nap ministry um is a movement that was founded by a, a religiously a, a black woman who has a degree in theology and she's a minister and she's advocating for black women who are the descendants of enslaved West African people in the Americas to nap, to nap as a sacred uh, spiritual practice and an anti-capitalist practice of resisting the grind and also as a form of reparations for their community. I'm also kind of curious uh, in now that you talk about your experience in Syria and in the United States, you're obviously very engaged in politics over there. I mean, you were engaged in politics over here too, like in, from over here, like I'm in Turkey. And um, 
you seem to have been engaged in left politics wherever you have been. And it's also kind of when it comes to reclaiming your space, a lot of the times in the new places that you've arrived to, the existing left political environment, I'm guessing there has been an element of hostility to what you kind of represent about Syria. Yeah, definitely. And to, to I think, and, and it's uh, so many things to say mm. <laughs> about that. Um, and to not only a resistance to Syria. So the way I've been thinking about it lately is just as the Palestinian struggle was you know, an, an institutional, even in institutional levels of, of like governing, like the UN was understood as Zionist occupation was understood as illegal and as a violation of human rights. And yet the same institution created UN RA and all of these institutions to permanently create a refugee industry so that the Palestinian struggle was no longer about politics, but about you know, satiating these nameless refugees who just dropped out of the sky and making it a permanent kind of fixture in international politics. And the same thing has happened with Syria, where, so I have a really interesting, so I, okay, so I went to a historically black college called Spelman College in the South. And that's why so much of my work is informed by black feminist thinking, because many of my mentors were like Beverly Guy Sheftal and Bahati Kumba were comrades with people like Angela Davis and had come to age in black radical um, struggles. So it helped me articulate. So the interesting thing was in black leftist communities where I was in the South, people could understand and were very inviting inviting me to speak about Syria and were interested in what it meant that a people were being targeted by their own government and by their own police. So then I started to like have these conversations with Syrian communities about anti-blackness and what does it mean and like, you know, to be targeted by your own system. And I think that framework was understood. Then in grad school, when I moved to San Diego and I started doing larger organizing, suddenly I feel like after the first two years of the Syrian revolution, people stopped talking about the actual uprising and there became this obsession with ISIS and the refugees. The refugees. Again, they were this depoliticized, apolitical uh, unit that just fell from the sky in millions. And suddenly there was an explosion of activism, especially in the left, that just reinscribed this sort of, you know, NGO humanitarian industrial complex of how do we save the refugees how do we you know help the local refugees and i i would get invited to all of these events and panels and talk about refugees and this and that but they wouldn't want to hear about the revolution <laughs> the entire reason there are refugees is because there was an uprising and the response to that uprising displaced millions of people and then it became this battleground for for so many other forces to come and unleash their terror. And so in all of that mess, also the same people who are, you know, maybe interested in Syrian refugees are also 
can be at times pro essed and that's just mm. i can't even begin to like articulate the level of of just gaslighting and frustration that this would create for so many syrians and it felt very lonely and there would be literal like i i would get an argument i got an, an argument with this socialist i call him a brochialist he's like patriarchal socialist dude white guy leftist um big activist dude you know who denied the chemical weapons attacks mm. in eastern hulta when they first started and um and my i had a family member who was who was a little five-year-old boy who was directly impacted by it and got like was not even in the area he was 30 minutes away but the exposure of the radiation gave him leukemia and he had to leave with his family and i was trying to humanize this in a way which what does that even mean because it's already just a, a dehumanizing conversation but i was telling this brochalist about that and he said that there's no way um he must have just gotten it from something else there's no way that he could have you know these chemical weapons were not real so it's just like it's just like arguing with a zionist or something like there's just no winning and a long time ago i just i honestly just kind of shut down because it's just so absurd to me how you can even support a a people like the refugees or whatever and be sympathetic toward that but not understand that most refugees are politicized every single person who i've met who's who's fled or like has a story related to either resisting assad or you know resisting isis or something that has made them politicized they are not just you know this this uh poor whatever like victims of this war like they are also revolutionaries too and i don't think the left understands that i i feel like it kind of boils down to a question of emotional imbalance in the end because what's happening for example in the conversation that you've described you have made this issue quite personal you have kind of expressed the personal aspect of it that's kind of takes I feel that kind of takes a level of courage to be able to expose your vulnerability in that kind of way and say that you have been personally affected by something that is for him and kind of just like a hobby that he follows on the newspapers and something that he has just like an opinion about. And exactly. I also genuinely believe that all these white brochures or whatever they are kind of emotional <laughs> be impacted by this also they're emotionally impacted in a different way they are kind of they this is this is how i've been feeling about this kind of discourse for a long time it triggers their guilt complex you know and mm -hmm. in this kind of like leftist environment which i think there's a whole conversation to be had about like the cancel culture or whatever about like how uh there's a lot of culture in the left that's kind of focused on making people feel guilty about their privileges for good and bad reasons i think and i think what that does it just it places these people in a place of just completely reacting to their guilt and nothing but that it just completely mm. fixates them on their emotional fixation about absolving themselves of their guilt 
and the victims of their privilege don't matter. It, it again comes back to everything being absolutely about what they want and how they feel and how they think that the world should be organized. And it totally abandons the idea of like having some kind of a reparation for the people who have been affected by their behavior and their privilege. Uh, I feel like it ha it boils down in the end to an emotional imbalance between your feelings not mattering as much as the feeling of these brochures, essentially. And this is, I feel, where the point that you're making in the article becomes even more valid because that you're talking about. We should maybe kind of like do a little summary of the article at some point, maybe just like rush through it. But in that article, I think you, you, you mostly talk about connecting with your own feelings in, in, within an activist environment and how connecting with your own feelings through pleasure, and this is my understanding of it, how connecting with your own feelings through, uh, through pleasure allows you to be more present while you're engaged in a, um, in a collective cause. And I feel in kind of activism, we need to be more aware of our feelings and the feelings of everybody else so that we can stop making things about ourselves all the time. I think it would allow us to, because everybody has guilt to a level and it is a healthy feeling that we should be having but we need to be able to realize that our guilt is not the center of the problem here. And this kind of political engagement is not for us to wash our hands. It is to stop the injustice that we are concerned about. So I think in that level, like what, what I really, really appreciated about your article was that it urges for opening up space To understand how we feel about things you know? mm. yeah i think that's a really good way to put it where you know for some people syria is an interesting sort of geopolitical debate that they get to it's have like watching game of thrones or something yeah know? it's like a video game <laughs> and and then and then so many um i've just found again and again that most of the time when when someone is blocked or or cannot understand my humanity i just uh it's almost like okay well well first of all is it worth it engaging but i have found at times that on a basic level just explaining my the fact that we're explaining my own family's story at a young age and recording it and putting it on the internet, like who would have thought that that act could, could be so could I didn't know that like this, this video that I put out would become like viral, like people resonate with on a basic level with um, hearing a story. I mean, it's like one of the most powerful technologies we have to, to radicalize someone is, was, is actually just relating to them on an emotional level. And I think of even Audre Lorde um, in uh, Age Race class, Women Redefining Difference. She says that the white fathers told us, I think, therefore I am. 
and the black mothers, the black foremothers told us, I feel, therefore I can be free. It's like the Western mode of rationality and logic. And this is what makes you human. This is literally how the early, you know, colonial uh, sort of writers, like whatever, like Bartolomeu de las Casas, and all of that wrote these huge treaties on how the indigenous person, the, the West African person, was not human because they couldn't think. And this sort of created a hierarchy of emotions were considered savage and wild and any kind of sentience was this unknowable, dark realm of, you know, irrationality, basically. And you see activists sort of using these patriarchal logics of like, you know, of basically if you can speak the language of, of like white male dominance as, as creating a criteria for whether or not you're worthy of humanity, I'm just like, I'm not with it. <laughs> for me, the, the ways that I've connected with other marginalized struggles has been through my emotions and my, my ability to communicate and to listen to the stories and the pain. I think that's what happens. Like when, when I watch the news and I, I remember um, there was this 18 year old black woman named Nia Wilson who her throat was slit on the on the BART in the Bay Area by a white supremacist in 2017, 2018, that summer. And hearing her sister speak to the news audience, it was her sister, her cousin, a family member, and just, you know, pleading with the world and being emotional and saying like, this is not an accident, this is not an accident. Like, I had uh, the same comrade who I talked about earlier in my story, my friend at the beginning of the revolution. She was brutally targeted by what I think was the regime, but she was murdered and her throat was slit. And I, I could see my same emotional, same, but obviously in a very different context and a different history, but I could feel her. I could feel that woman, her cry and her, her just pleading to the world to, to understand her, I could just feel that like on a somatic level. And I think that's what so much of the Syrian struggle has been about is like, we're dying. Why doesn't anyone give a fuck? <laughs> like, you know, like just screaming, like literally just dying to be heard. And and so when you can hear that, like Audre Lorde said, there's a timber of voice that comes from not being heard, which is only heard by others who are not being heard. It's almost like a, a secret language because, because in that case, to the different degrees and different contexts, but your average like racist white male would just see like a hysterical black woman or a hysterical brown woman. And would completely shut down. But I think there's a way that we can recognize each other's like emotional experiences that 
gives us a level of humanity that the system is is not affording us i've got a i've got a feeling that this kind of uh, the very distinction between thinking and emotions the distinction between the heart and the brain those distinctions in itself are actually they contain a profound fallacy mm. because when i think when i think of a hysteric reaction for example what comes to my mind naturally is not someone who's angry about their sister having been brutally murdered what i think of hysteria is when you tell some cracker leftist that you know this is the experience that you've been through and they just kind of close their ears and go like i don't want to hear it because exactly. i have this sense of guilt inside of me that i'm trying to get rid of and so therefore i am not going to do the compassionate and actually the reasonable thing of hearing you out instead i'm going to freak out about what i think is right i find that is what is hysterical exactly I mean, and yeah the most unreasonable thing that you can do to a human being yeah i definitely i i tell people all the time um you know like i don't know i was told by by someone i was working with this summer that um with someone in an herbalism program um but she the the George Floyd and and Breonna Taylor protests and everything was coming to a really pivotal point back in June and i i came to my my internship and i was like emotionally erect like i was just i was so angry i was so sad i was just so whatever and she was like you know you in the real world this isn't going to work like you need to um basically stop being so emotional so reactive whatever and um but i told her emotions are a form of rationality emotions do not make you irrational i'm emotional for a very rational and logical reason i am emotional in a way that is not like given if we <laughs> lived in a world where you know black people were seen as fully human then i wouldn't have to be so emotional right now but this is this is an appropriate and also necessary reaction to given the level of brutality and the kinds of crackdowns that are happening and you know i was like like the murder of brianna taylor was extra close to me because i i know her boyfriend's family her her sister-in-law was my roommate in college and so i was extra emotional just felt like you know it was even closer to home and and just so horrifying that it, that a woman could be shot in her own bed at night like 12 times with impunity and um yeah i just kept telling her that that i don't think emotions are illogical i don't think that it's irrational to react this way i think actually on the contrary it's a very it makes complete sense to to react you know in a necessary kind of the, the reaction of this person kind of reminds me we've had we published an article not long ago by joy ayub it was about hello the, can you hear me i can hear you now all right uh we're back on 
we just published an article not too long ago by Joey Ayub about the uh, the explosion that happened in Beirut on the fourth of August. And in that article, he kind of talks about one of his friend's father, who right after the explosion, almost immediately after the explosion, he just got out and he started fixing the windows in the house. And his friend was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like this thing just happened. And I don't think it's healthy for you to be obsessing about being functional right now there's something that needs to be processed right now and joey's theory and i suppose his friend's theory also is that this kind of reaction is a is a is a generational kind of behavior in 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 this person mm -hmm. in this father's generation they have been through so much trauma that they have fixated on this idea that they have to be functional no matter what and I feel like this this insistence on insistence on uh, swallowing up your emotions, sucking it up, and just kind of getting on with life. That in itself, to me, seems like it is a product of trauma. Um, yeah, I think that that's something that our elders teach us. Is I mean. <laughs> the ways that they've been forced to to run on empty for generations and generations and so much of what we're doing now is because they you know they did what they had to do and that's that's valid too for for many of their contexts and um i have some like black feminist elder activist elders who are you know like posting videos now about self-care and a couple years ago they thought that that was a bunch of bullshit and that it was you know and so many of us have had conversations with elders and some elders are really resistant to that too and just completely shut down i mean my mom thinks self-care is a millennial construct and she's always like <laughs> just like what are you talking about and she's very much in that sort of activist you know, and I love I that's okay, too. If it doesn't resonate, I think, like I, I said before, someone like my grandmother, that language would, or that response would not work for her. She would just feel almost disempowered if you know, at the same time, she's like, every time I come to town, my aunts are like, oh, will you give us a massage? Or, you know, they, they know that around me, they can ask for things that they've never asked anyone to do for them before because to them, I represent some kind of departure, you know, from that. And I think that's, that's powerful too. There's, there's something to learn from them, um, even though it can be really traumatizing. And I've, I think a lot of like internalized patriarchy is sort of like, well, I got through this. Why can't you? Why can't you do this by shutting down? And, and by, do, you know, I had it so much harder. Why can't you, you know, do what I did? And that can be really risky after a point. And to be honest, I don't think there is any guarantee that when we get older, we're not going to be like that. <laughs> I mean, in the terms of whether the idea of self-care is a millennial thing or not, because like if we look at boomers, they were the, they were partying a lot more than we did, according to 
Yeah. <laughs> I guess. But I mean, that's kind of like a common generalization about the difference between boomers and millennials also, that we are kind of more indoorsy, we do a lot less drugs, that we kind of party a lot less. I mean, that was their idea of self-care and having a good time. And we have mm. developed a different idea. And I don't think any kind of whether we call it self-care, whether we call it partying or whatever, anything that we do now is not going to guarantee that we're not going to become sour and grumpy in 30 years' time. So yeah, I, I can see where they're coming from. Yeah. I mean, I even have to check myself sometimes. Like, just being careful not to... People have always, when I was younger, projected things onto me as a young person and and been like oh you're so naive oh you're so whatever you're so this and and I have to be careful now not to be condescending or um undermining of of people who are younger than me and and realize that there may be some unfamiliar and like you know even my friends and I joke about like the younger generation being so much more so much less bound by socialized kind of like career tracks you know we're just like oh yeah little gen z intern can go fucking like be a social media whatever and like you know i have to be careful of that because they're actually teaching all of us something there about like monetizing your creative talents in a way that like older generations typically didn't or you know at least millennials didn't because of our like economic positioning and things like that what impresses me about the coming generation, I guess, the Gen Zers so much is their just unbridled cynicism. That, yeah. <laughs> that I find to be kind of scary at some point, but it, it just, it kind of rubs it in my nose how optimistic our generation has been. Hmm. Yeah, I think they're just really next level. I don't know. I think they... Yeah, I think in many ways, my sister and I were also talking about like how much earlier it felt like they were politicized. I mean, because of so much, you know, having access to so much technology and, and that experience is like a really big change compared to, to the kinds of exposure we had because I guess social media was, I mean, I didn't have a, a real like smartphone or whatever till college you know and now kids having that at such a young age and and access to those things i would be fucking cynical too i would be like this is all such bullshit like <laughs> you know there's just so much to learn i really do think that the yeah we just so often ignore and like belittle the contributions that younger people have to make but there's there's a lot of wisdom and and yeah a lot of things that they're carrying. Especially I'm thinking about climate change. I mean, climate change has been a reality for us uh, that we are going to probably deal in our older days, but for younger people, they're going to deal with that when they're our age. Mm -hmm. So it's a much more kind of striking reality to them, which, which probably yeah. does contribute to their cynicism. We've always had this belief that, you know, Oh, if we work together, things are going to be all right. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think they have that belief. 
at all. They they kind of see it as more like everyone for themselves. Mm. And they've been at the forefront of, at least in the U.S., of climate activism. Of course, too. yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's been really, really interesting. That's been really refreshing to see, yes. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, I just want to kind of like on our final points, I just would like to talk a bit more about the article because we just kind of really oh, yeah. dived into the hard stuff without ever saying what the article was actually about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually had a dream that I had to write an article called Belly Dancing Activism and the Politics of Pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I take my dreams really seriously. Um, I think they're very much like an indigenous form of knowledge and wisdom that's, that's been, yeah, just, you know, sort of uh, seen as like a superstition or something like that. But um, they often guide me to where I need to go next. And I was just really yearning to talk about a politics of pleasure in my own context. I hadn't really seen a conversation about um, pleasure in, in like a sort of Middle East and diaspora um, context. And, and I do, I will say like, even since releasing the article, there have been, um, women like uh, Rotana, I am Rotana, who's a Saudi American uh, like experimental singer and she released a music video featuring Adrienne Marie Brown's pleasure activism book and it was all about Arab women's bodies and not having the right to sensuality and to pleasure without there being some kind of policing or a gaze on either end and I thought that was really brilliant and there was this other um, there's this series on Instagram called the Dalua series who have launched an entire conversation around the word Aib, which means inappropriate or shameful, and what it looks like to engage in things that are Aib and how that word has been weaponized in our communities to police these like gendered experiences of pleasure. Um, so I, I like that that conversation is finally moving forward in our communities. I've always felt like there was such a hold on this. I mean, even in in activist communities that I was a part of, there would be such deep judgment if you posted something on your social media that wasn't related to the struggle or like that was in some way kind of, uh, what's the word? Not like extravagant, but sort of like indulgent, you know? And, And in some ways that's like to criticize uh, this sort of classism and display of of certain kinds of like leisure that people have on the internet but but in many ways it was just a police like swana women's bodies and and even though it's a gendered thing i think it impacts men as well and and everyone in the community um so my article was to be an intervention to sort of uh bring the conversation about a politics of pleasure and what pleasure looks like as um, as an embodiment of like oppositional consciousness, basically. 
how it can be a form of consciousness given a system of of like occupation war those kinds of things and how i've found for myself belly dancing is a medium it's a perfect metaphor for the exact type of gazes that we're in like it's a practice that that we do behind closed doors that we engage in and have pleasure in but any there's sort of this outside gaze that appropriates it um and that sells it and that commodifies it um and there's an internal gaze that polices it that segregates it from you know that keeps it this sort of private thing and um and what if we what if we were able to tell the story on our own terms and to do these practices in our own ways as um a form of protest basically and insisting on the right to to do these things without without being policed and um I had I just want to end with I I had this other dream um about belly dancing. I had this dream that I was uh taking a belly dancing class and there was this little girl next to me. She's like a 12-year-old girl and she's looking at me and I'm having so much fun and I'm like finally I get to reclaim this thing and I ask her where she's from and she's basically from the future and she's she's like my future daughter and she's like because you're doing this now i feel more free so thank you for doing this <laughs> and i i loved it because it's it's like what we were saying so much of so many of our elders had to uh repress themselves and never were allowed the chance to like embody themselves and do things that they loved because of the worlds that they lived in and so it makes me not only me a little bit more free when i'm able to finally reclaim those things but it also whatever children and it might not be children that i have but whatever young or future generation is coming next it gives me the space i have already lived my life enough to where i don't have to project on them <laughs> like so many of our elders do Mm-hmm. and it gives them the space to know that 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 was already happening and there's space for them to pursue whatever gives them pleasure in the future without this sort of um gaze it I is don't know if that, yeah no it makes a lot of sense it's also like you said earlier uh, at the very start uh of this interview it's almost kind of like a way of saying here i am in spite of everything that's stacked up against me everything that's trying to uh, minimize my chances of survival so it is in itself actually beyond um beyond an act of self care it is also a way of defying something mm. yeah exactly and and i think in syria when those communities put on a play in the middle of a siege it's a form of time travel in a sense because they're saying we are creating a space where we can feel the embodiment of freedom when everything around us is structurally unfree so we are transporting ourselves to the possibility of a world and like somatically living in it before it is even there 
Mm. And I think that's what makes these practices so necessary to our liberation. Absolutely. Well, this was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thank uh, you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation and for the article and for sharing deeply personal thoughts uh, with, with us and our listeners. And hope to hear from you in the future again. Yeah, thank you so much. This, this whole process has been really amazing. Oh, I really God. appreciate all Likewise. of your work. Thank you so much.